0: You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. So, Nehemiah 4 is where we are. We're in a series on holy ambition. We're trying to discover together how to move from the ruins of selfish ambition into the revival that is holy ambition. And so, um, if you will look with me, Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read down to verse 14. Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, whenever Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry angry. And greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox will go up on it, it will break down their wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all, and all of the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat, and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites And the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and he set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall and in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you for um, those who can be here today. I thank you for... um, just the gifts of even our worship team and how they lead us faithfully each week to stir our hearts towards you. I thank you for those who are using their gifts to serve and fellowship kids right now and to care well for them. And Father, I pray that in the time that we have right now the teaching of your word, that... um, Lord, that you will just open our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us. That you will exceed our expectations. That you will set our our eyes on what it is that you want us to focus on in this passage. And that you will transform us as a result. It's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Uh, On Monday night, my middle child, Wyatt, had a competitive t-ball game. And so after I um, got off work, I decided to try to help him practice for his game. Wyatt is... Uh, he's not the most athletic type. And so, um, but we're we're trying to get him to play some team sports. And so we take him outside and I put the ball on the tee and I'm trying to teach him how to hold the bat and how to swing properly. Um, But it's obvious that he wanted nothing to do with tee ball. In fact, I mean, from the moment that he walked outside, he he just began to complain. I mean, it's like 80 degrees outside, but he's like, it's so hot out here. And he's talking about like specifically his left ear and how hot his left ear is and how he's (laughs) tired and he can't swing the bat. And it's been a long day at school and all of this. And with each passing complaint, I found myself growing increasingly angry with my son. And so I, I, I'm a preacher and, and I, I know I have to like try to mask my anger with spiritual language. I've learned how to do that quite well, actually. And so um, the first thing I did is I began to quote scripture at him. And so my son's not even five, by the way. And so I said to him, oh, son... Hey, man, Paul says that we, whatever we do, we're going to do it all for the glory of God. And so, hey, right now you're playing t-ball, so I want you to swing that bat for God's glory, son. And um, I thought it was pretty inspiring, but I, I could just see his heart getting harder and harder as I preached at him. Um, and so he just refused to try to swing the bat. And so eventually, I, I go from quoting scripture to using guilt and so I was like I know what I'll do to motivate him and so I said hey son you know how fortunate you are to have a daddy in your life to to to, to be here to play ball with you I said there's a lot of uh, kids who their dads are too busy or maybe they've actually died because that happens son uh, kids dads die and I was like but I'm here and uh and I can play with you And so you need to enjoy this moment right now and, and so at this point, like, I mean, he's just like losing it. He's like, man, I, I'm not going to swing the bat. And so I go from, from, from using scripture and to using guilt to using something that motivates me a lot in my life, which is shame. And, and so I thought, I know what I'll do. And so he, he's beginning to cry. He's beginning to get frustrated. And I look at him and I say to him, and I'm not proud of this, but I said, son, you're being a crybaby. In fact, you're crying more than your little baby brother Moses right now. And I just kind of begin to lay it on thick about how he's being a whiner and he's crying. He just begins to cry more. And I'm like, no, just pick it up, son. I, mean, I just want you to try to hit the ball one time, maybe two times, and we're going to go to your game. He will not do it. And so at this point, and I share this, uh, not to be funny, I honestly, it breaks my heart to think about it, but I look at him, and, and, and even as a, as a man who follows Jesus and loves my kids, I go from trying to motivate him with Scripture to motivate him with guilt, to motivate him with shame, to motivate him with abandonment. And I literally look at my son, and I say, hey, here's the deal. Look, if you don't want my help, I'm just not going to help you anymore. How about this? I said, look, if you want to be bad at t-ball, you can be bad at t-ball. I'm not going to help you practice again. How about that? And I walk in, and here comes my son behind me, my four-year-old son, and he's crying. And fortunately, my wife, she kind of begins to talk some sense into me. But I watch as my son throws himself on the, on the couch and begins to weep. And in that moment, man, my heart breaks. I'm, I'm thinking, man. Man, like, I am Wyatt's father, and here I am. I'm supposed to be speaking life into my son, and yet because of my own shame story, I'm breaking him down. And and for the record, I went back and I asked my son for forgiveness, and he was quick to forgive me. But I'm thinking, you know, here's my son in in one of the most formative stages of his life, and I'm just letting him have it. I mean, simply because he doesn't want to hit a ball with a stick... I'm casting upon him the same critical spirit that calls me to grow up performing and overcompensating in my life. And, and the reason I share that with you this morning is not to try to just you know, have a, a moment of confession, though, that does do my soul some good. But the reason I share that is because that moment on Monday in, in my backyard, I think, is a picture of the critical culture that we live in today. A culture where we are notorious for tearing people down rather than building them up. And I'm guessing for most of you in here today, you've experienced this. Uh, Whether it be from a parent or a coach or a boss, or a spouse, or a bully at school, or some troll on social media, right? For most of us in here, we have experienced, I think on one level or another, criticism and opposition that has left us feeling like we have been beat down. And therefore, for most of us, if not all of us today, I think we can relate with what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 4. Because in Nehemiah chapter 4, what you have is a group of people who are simply trying to do the right thing. They're trying to live their life the right way. They're trying to be faithful to what God has called them to do. And as a result of simply trying to be faithful, they begin to experience an immense amount of opposition and criticism from the world around them. And before we dive into this and talk about how to deal with criticism when it comes our way, I just want to remind you of the context of this book. Uh, The book of Nehemiah, we've said it before, it's actually the last book written in the Old Testament. It's not positioned that way in your Bible, but it is the last book written, which means it was the last book that was uh, written before the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's actually the last thing that we see God doing in order to prepare the city of Jerusalem for this new king, Jesus Christ, who would come through his perfect life, death, and resurrection to rescue and redeem us and then rule and reign over his creation. So this is a major moment in world history here. This is a major moment, and in this moment, in this story, what we find is because Israel has been unfaithful to God, God has given them over to their enemies, and so people came into their cities and sacked their cities and basically took them into captivity, and they burned Jerusalem to the ground, they burned the temple, they burned down the walls, and just when it seems like all is lost, God raises up this man, Nehemiah an Israelite man who finds himself positioned next to the Persian king, the most powerful man on the planet. And so Nehemiah, his heart is broken over what breaks the heart of God. It's broken over what he sees in Jerusalem. So he goes to the Persian king and he says, look, I want to go back and I want to do something about the brokenness. I want to repair the wall. And the Bible says because the good hand of God was on Nehemiah, the king grants Nehemiah his request. He gives him everything that he needs to go back and begin rebuilding the wall. So Nehemiah, we see in chapter 2, he heads back to Jerusalem and he begins to try to recruit people for this work. And then in Nehemiah chapter 3, which is too technical to have an entire sermon over, what we see is because Nehemiah stands up in an impossible day, and he says this can be done. He rally, he's able to rally a people for a great cause. He gets his people to come and join him in the work. And then what happens in Nehemiah 3 is he breaks them up into literally 40 different working groups. And together what we see happens is this diverse group of people begin to work together under the leadership of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And so we don't have time to look at it today, but if you, if you have a chance, go and read Nehemiah 3. It really is an incredible story of what God can do through a group of people who simply say, we will do whatever we can do in order to make this come about. Um, This past week, I was at Something Sweet, uh, working on this message, actually, and a woman came in to Something Sweet. She said, hey, aren't you one of the pastors of fellowship? And I said, I am. And she said, I just want you to know, like, we love y'all's building, we love what y'all have done to the building downtown. Like you In her own words, she said, y'all have improved downtown so much. And that meant a lot to me because those of you that, that were with us when we bought this building, one of the things we wanted to do was bring life to downtown. We actually faced a lot of criticism uh, early on. Uh, people opposed us and said, if, 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 if a church goes downtown, they're actually gonna kill downtown. And we said, man, that's the last thing we wanna do. We believe the gospel brings life, and so we wanna bring life. And so uh, when we bought this building, I mean, if you saw it before and you saw it now, you'd be blown away. Um, Last year, some of you don't know this, but we won the renovation of the year in Arkansas last year. And so we got to send uh, Jordan Lane and Brandon Treat to Fort Smith to receive an award on behalf of the church. And so anyways, this lady comes in, she talks about this. And what I begin to think about a lot of this story is the reason the building looks the way it does now is because a group of people came together and made themselves available and said, I'm willing to to work and do whatever's needed in order to bring about the change. And uh, specifically, one example of this is, do we have a picture of the brick wall? Yeah. And so this is actually the the brick wall, the foyer outside here. Um, This wall, do we have a picture of the back wall behind me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, place for juniors right there behind me. And so (laughs) what what you see is um, whenever we bought this building, There was drywall that was just like right here on the brick wall there. And it had this really great wallpaper over it. And then underneath that was this concrete that we had to literally chisel away. And if you remember, those of you that were here, uh, we didn't know what we would find. We heard there was old brick walls behind it. And so we just got a whole bunch of hammers. Um, We got wheelbarrows and we got shovels. And some people would pick up a hammer and just begin to chisel away at the concrete. Some would hit it with the crowbar. And then others would come behind us with shovels and they would get the debris, put it in wheelbarrows. We'd take it out. I mean, just repeat over and over again. And eventually... Right, We were able to restore these original 1902 walls, which a lot of people get their pictures made around for weddings and all sorts of stuff. And I could give more examples of the work that took place here. But the point I want to make is this. It's amazing what will happen when a group of people will rally together for a cause. When they will just come together around a mission and say, I will do whatever I can do. And that's exactly what we see happening in Dehemiah chapter 3. A group of people, because they're willing to take responsibility for a work they actually had never done before, because they're willing to come together for a common cause, God uses them to bring about a great change. And I just want to say this as a side note before we move forward. I know that sometimes the work that we're given seems tedious and it seems small, and it seems insignificant, whether it's chipping away at concrete, or volunteering and fellowship kids, or being a door greeter, or serving in our missional community. But I was reminded this past week that, that it's through the small things that when done to the best of our ability, God brings about great change, and he values the small things. I was reading in Zechariah 4 this past week about how Before God sent back Nehemiah to help rebuild the walls, he sent uh, out this man named Zerubbabel, which if you're pregnant looking for a child's name, that might be an option for you, calling little Zeb or something. And and so God sends Zerubbabel back to try to rebuild the temple. And and listen to this. The people are getting discouraged because of all the work. And listen to, to Zechariah 4. God says, Do not despise these small things, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. The plumb line was this small tool that they would use in building. And God says, literally, I rejoice over seeing this little tool put to use. Because, guys, listen, it's through the small things, when it's done to the best of our ability, that God brings about great change. And so this is what we see in chapter 3. Okay, So all things are going well, right? All encouraging at this point. But then we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4... And in chapter 5, and in chapter 6, and in chapter 7, Israel is now going to come up against major opposition and criticism. And I want you to think about this, okay? Up to this point, we have two verses that are devoted to passion in this story. We have ten verses that are devoted to prayer. We have five verses that are devoted to planning. And then we're going to have four chapters on the importance of dogged perseverance. And the reason I think God is going to devote so much time to perseverance is, listen, guys, you can have all of the passion and all of the talent and all of the resources and all of the education in the world. But if you do not have perseverance, you will not be able to see the work through that God has laid on your hands to do. I was reminded of a quote by John D. Rockefeller this past week, who's considered the most uh, the wealthiest man to ever live. And he says this, There is no other quality so essential to success of any kind as the quality of perseverance. It overcomes almost everything. Lou Holtz, who is considered one of the greatest college football coaches of all time, says, you aren't going to find anybody who's going to be successful without perseverance. I know it's not necessarily a glamorous word. It doesn't seem that meaningful. But the truth is, if you want to make your life, please hear this, If you want to make your life count for the glory of God, more than you need gifts, you need grit. Gifts are important, okay? Not minimizing that. But if you don't have grit, if you don't have perseverance, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. Um, In this life, we will get body slammed over and over again. Holy ambition will draw opposition from others. In order for us to be successful, therefore, in the mission God has given us, we guys as a church are going to need dogged perseverance. Uh, we are going to need courage, we're going to need character. We're going to need a drive that says, I'm going to remain committed to God even when nobody else in the city is committed. I'm going to continue to push forward in the midst of criticism and opposition. And that's what we see happen right here in Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you look back with me, starting in verse 1. I want you to see this. Nehemiah has rallied a people to begin rebuilding these walls for Jerusalem. Things are going well, but then look what happens. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Have you ever done anything in your life that made people jeer at you? Literally. Nehemiah is doing a work here And this guy named Sanballat comes around And he begins to criticize what's going on And the first thing that we see him criticize here Is he, he criticizes the workers themselves If you look at verse 2 he says What are these feeble Jews doing? Do they think they'll be able to restore this wall all by themselves? In other words he says man look Nehemiah how weak all of these people are Look around you These people are not impressive They're not impressive at all He says, look how how weak they are. Nehemiah, you're on a loser team. This is the B team at best. Do you really think that you're going to be able to rebuild a strong wall with such fragile people? He criticizes the workers. Next, he doesn't just criticize the workers. He criticizes the work itself. He says in verse 2, you think they're actually going to be able to finish this in a day? He says, Nehemiah, let me remind you. You've got enemies that are coming your way. I mean, you're in great danger. Do you really think you're going to be able to finish this work in time? I mean, this is useless. You're wasting your time with this work, Nehemiah. And then he goes on, he doesn't just criticize the workers and the work, but he then criticizes the resources. And in verse 2, he says, Well, they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that. He's like, Man, you're trying to build a wall with charcoal. I mean, that's the best you have. Look at your resources. And that, that's pitiful. And then you have this guy named Tobiah in verse 3 who begins to to kind of, uh, you know, to chime in here. And he says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside Sanballat. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it'll break their stone wall down. I kind of get the sense, don't you, that Tobiah is just this guy that really wants to hang out with Sanballat. And he's just like, whatever Sanballat says, Tobiah's like, yeah! He's like where, you know, even if a fox would jump up on his wall, it'd break it down. And I don't know why he talks like he's from Philly, but that's kind of a mind. And so like, he's like, yeah, man, you get him. And you can just kind of like see him like, yeah, high five. Oh, we're so funny. And all this, like, that's what's going on here. And I want you to just think about this for a second. Like, if this is where you were, would you be excited about the work that God had given you to do? I mean, just think about it. If you had people around you who were saying, you're giving yourself to a ridiculous cause that's filled with terrible workers and no resources, would you be excited? Some of you are like, that's actually where I work right now, now that I think about it. (sighs) Chances are, like we're not going to be motivated for very long. And that's what Sanballat is trying to do here. He's literally rallying his boys to try to discourage the people. He's launching a verbal assault on this group for the purpose of discouraging them from doing the very thing that God has laid on their hands to do. And the reason this is, is listen guys, Sanballat knows that if he can break their spirits, he can stop the work. And so he gathers his posse and he just begins to bombard these Jews with verbal attacks. But then, look, because the verbal attacks don't stop the Jews from working, he then moves from a verbal threat to a physical threat. If you look in verse 7, it says, When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem and that it was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And so they all plotted to come together to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion within it. So just imagine this for a moment. Here you are with your family, and you're giving yourself to a good cause. You're trying to do a good thing. You're seeking the welfare of a city, and people hate you for it. And they hate you so much, they don't just want to to, to verbally Hurt you. They want to physically hurt you. They, they, they want to take your life. And so here's what happens now for the Jews. Literally, they have enemies, not just in the north and the south. They have enemies in the east and the west as well. I mean, literally everywhere that you look, put yourself in their place. Everywhere you look, you have people who want to kill you. And so as a result, this begins to weigh on the workers. Okay, the oppression now begins to wear on them a little bit. And to make matters worse, not only do they experience opposition from outside, they begin to experience it even within the inside. If you look in verse 10, it says, In Judah, so this is not coming from Sanballat, this is coming from within the camp. In Judah, it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come along them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews, so this is the own people, right? The Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. In other words, you must quit. You must stop doing this work. And listen, man, this kind of criticism, this kind of opposition, this is the most painful opposition you will face. I mean, you think about it. Literally, you have Jews who were criticizing now these workers for doing a work that they themselves were not willing to do. You have a people who say, you know what, I'm not going to come out of my house and help you, but I'll gladly come and criticize and complain about those who are actually trying to make a difference in this world. And at this point, as a result of this, the workers begin to get really discouraged. They're now beginning to believe the lies from the enemy more than they're believing the promises of God. And so in verse 10, what you see is we see the workers suffer a loss of strength. They suffer a loss of vision. They uh, suffer a loss of a sense of security. I mean, literally because of the opposition they are facing, they go from being a people filled with hope to being a people filled with doubt. And that doubt is summed up, by the way, in in a phrase in verse 10 where they say, we will not be able to rebuild this wall. In chapter 2, they say, let's rise up and let's build. In chapter 4, because of opposition and criticism, they say, we cannot do that. Let's just give up. You ever been there before? Man, I know I have. I was thinking about just a couple months before we planted this church. Um, we decided to make a video to let people know what we were about as a church and how we wanted to take the good news forward of Jesus Christ of the broken and the burnout and the hopelessly lost in our city. And so we made this video that that, that we hope, you know, try to capture that. And there was a family that we um, had in the video. We asked for their permission, uh, even interviewed them for the video. And it was a family that my wife and I had poured into. Uh, Over the last few years, we had even kept their kids many times in our house. There was five different kids in the home. They all had different dads. It was a single mom that was taking care of them. They were impoverished and uh, baptized the mom. And anyways, they said, yeah, we'd be glad to help. We want other people in the city to experience the kind of uh, help that we've experienced. And so uh, they were glad to make the video. And so we made it, and we released it. Within a couple days, people gave us great feedback. But then, in fact, the third or fourth day after we released it, this mom sends me a text and says, I don't ever want to see you again. I don't want to see me again. It's like, what's this about? I said, can you tell me what, what happened? And she said, yeah, I heard how you and your church put this money or put this video together so you could just make money on me. I was like, what? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another pastor, and she gave me the name of the pastor and his wife in town, said that, that that's what you did. That that's, that's what you do. You just wanted to to go, and you wanted to use us, and you wanted to make money so that you could pocket it for yourself. And I went to this, this um this pastor and, and this wife in and, and town, and I, and I just lovingly said, Man, is this true? And, and here was just the response. The response was this You and your church, y'all think y'all's better than everybody else, don't you? That's why you're going to plan a new church rather than just like go to an already existing church. Y'all think y'all can do it better than everybody else? I mean, they just started throwing like all this crazy stuff out there. And I mean, I, I physically, like literally cried in front of them. And I was just like, What are you talking about? I it was a lie. The whole thing was a lie um and that happened just a couple weeks after I met whenever we decided to move back I met with a guy in town who was pretty well known another pastor of a, a local church and was connecting with other local churches and just wanted to share with him <clears throat> what we were going to be doing and I was excited and I figured he'd say man that's great we want to see more churches that are taking the gospel forward but instead he looked at me and the first thing I was mouth, he said hey Jared are you a Calvinist I said a Calvinist I said uh, what's a Calvinist I said what's the definition what's a, what's a Calvinist and he said and I'm, I'm not lying, I mean I'm not exaggerating this at all he said uh I don't know, but I know it's like being a homosexual, and I've heard that that's what you are, and I've heard, I'm not making this up at all, and he said, and I've heard that you're going to be teaching a message that says Jesus is not the way to God, and just started throwing all stuff out, I said, dude, I said, I'll give my life to teaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, like that's why we're here. And I could give you more examples. I honestly thought about giving you my top five experiences of like opposition and criticism. The Lord's like, no, don't do that. And so um, I could give you more examples. Like this happens, it comes up still to say, here's just my point. When you decide to step out, like you're going to experience opposition. You're going to experience criticism. And, And, you know, I've always been one of these guys, like I expect it from people outside the church. I really do. I'm like, whatever, you know, like it is what it is. But whenever people from inside the church begin to just criticize you, like it just knocks the wind out of yourselves, man. It really does. like it makes you want to throw in the towel. and I'm assuming like that's not just a temptation for me, it's a temptation for all of us. Um, and, and so you know, I think like the temptation is whenever we get hit, whether it's from outside or inside or where all at times you're like, you know what? it's just not worth it. I'm done. I'm not going to keep serving this way, I'm not going to keep doing that. And because that is a real temptation, I want you to just look, and I'm going to be quick here, but I want you to look at how Nehemiah responds when this opposition and this criticism comes his way. And the first thing that we see from him is this, and this is what we have to apply if we're going to handle the opposition and criticism ourselves, is the first thing we see whenever he begins to experience persecution is whenever people turn to Nehemiah with their taunts, Nehemiah turns to God in prayer. It's the first thing that we have to do if we're going to handle opposition well. We talked about this, guys, a couple of weeks ago, but we have got to learn how to channel our angst into prayer. When someone hurts you or frustrates you, before we go to our parents, I've seen a lot of marriages hurt because a spouse goes to their parents after something happens. Before we go to our parents, before we go and we talk about it on social media, before you even go to your fight club or people in your missional community, you have got to start taking your pain and your hurt to God. That's exactly what we see happen right here with Nehemiah. When criticism comes his way, before he does anything else, he prays. And look at how he prays. This is really interesting to me. In verse 4... He says, "Hear, O our God, for we are despised, turn back their taunts on their heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I, I love Nehemiah's prayer here. He's not trying to church anything up. He goes to God, he says, "These people are driving me crazy." Right? Like, like you've got to shut them down. He literally says at one point, God, don't forgive them of their sins, actually. Like, I actually don't want that to happen. And and I know this sounds crazy, but there's an important lesson for us to learn here, and it's this. Prayer is not a place for you to be good. It's a place for you to be honest. I love how Nehemiah is honest before God. Some of us try to church up our prayers and make it sound pretty, and I I just imagine God listening there going, come on, man, seriously. Like, I know that's not what you're thinking. Like, I see what's in. Just tell me what's really on your heart. Nehemiah is a man who understands if we're going to be a people who handle criticism and opposition, the real us has to meet the real God. And so Nehemiah, before he does anything else, he goes to God as he is with his hurt, with his pain, and he pours out his heart, heart to God. So that's the first thing we see, right? If we're going to move forward in the midst of opposition, we must be a people of prayer. But then secondly, not only do we need prayer, not only do we need to pray to God, but if we're going to face opposition well, we have to cling to the promises of God. If you look at verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, Nehemiah says, Do not be afraid of them, and remember who? Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Despite the fact that Nehemiah is not a priest, Nehemiah is not a prophet, Nehemiah is still a man who knows his Bible. And therefore, he knows who God is and what he has promised to do. And therefore, he's able to stand up in this incredibly terrifying experience. And he says, guys, listen, I know we have a lot of enemies that are coming our way, but we have the Lord and he is a great and he is an awesome God. And therefore, because we have seen his greatness time and time again throughout history, because we know his promises and that God is always true to his promises. Listen, guys, we don't have to panic. We, we don't have to be afraid. He says, our God is greater than Sanballat and Tobiah or any of our enemies from the north or the south or the east or the west. And so Nehemiah, secondly, right, he he starts with prayer. He then moves to promises. And then lastly, what do we see? In order to handle his opposition, he gives the people a perspective. In verse 15, he says, again, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And look at this. And fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. I just see this as like a brave heart moment. This is like whatever big speech you think of throughout time. Like this is it for Nehemiah. And what does he say? Look, he said, if we're going to handle opposition, guys, we need to get some perspective about what we're doing today. He said, you need to realize that what we're doing today is not just about you. It's about your families. It's about your sons. It's about your daughters. It's about the generations that are to come. And so he's like, look, even if you don't care enough about your own life to keep pressing forward, at least realize that what you're doing today impacts the people who are coming behind you whom you love. I want to encourage you with the same thing today, guys. I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in just the tyranny of the moment to live for today without any perspective on what's coming after our lives are over. And I just want to say, like, listen, I know that getting up in the mornings and reading your Bible, it's not always easy. I understand that that, that praying and sharing your faith, like I know Julie got a chance to do this past week with Haji, and being a person of integrity and giving for kingdom purposes and stepping into missional communities i know that's not easy but here's the reality what you're doing today does not just impact you it impacts your children it impacts your spouse it impacts all the people around you and the people that are to come and if you don't believe that i just want to share this with you about the impact especially to those of you who are parents and grandparents about the influence that you have on the generations to come. I want you to, to hear this. I 'm going to read this expert, expert from uh, Jim Priest, who's an attorney, an attorney and a minister and the founder of Marriage Works. He wrote about the reality of our decisions today and how they impact our, our children and generations to come. and I want you to hear this, okay It's kind of lengthy, but I promise you it 's worth your time. He wrote this: He said, "Do you ever wonder whether your life really matters? Do you sometimes ask yourself whether the sacrifices that you've made will have any lasting effect? Let me assure you, your life does matter, and the sacrifices you make for your family does have an impact. I base this bold statement on two studies about how a person's action affects the lives of his or her family and the generations that follow. The research centers on the lives of two men, Max Juke and Jonathan Edwards. According to the research conducted by Richard Dugdale, Juke was reportedly an atheist who believed in liberation from laws. He allegedly advocated free sex, had no formal education, and hated imposed responsibilities. In other words, who, who are you to tell me what I should do? I'm, I'm my own authority. I live today however I want to live. It looks good, tastes good, feels good. I'm going for it. Dugdale wrote that Juke was a hunter and a fisher, a hard worker, jolly and companionable, averse, to steady toil, working hard by spurts and idling by turns. He had numerous progeny, offspring, some of them uh, certainly illegitimate. In other words, Juke was now the principal nor industrious. Okay, stay with me. Some years later, a man named A.U. Winship studied what happened to the descendants of colonial-era evangelist Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is everything Juke was not, hardworking, God-fearing, Bible-believing. Winship wrote that Edwards was a godly minister who was credited with igniting the Great Awakening through his sermons. He served for a brief period just before his death as a president of what is now Princeton University. Certainly, Juke and Edwards had an effect on their immediate families, but what about the generations that followed? Okay, Now listen to this. Here we go. Here's what happened in the years after Juke and Edwards died. In his study, Dugdale found that of the 1,026 descendants of Max Juke, 300 were convicts, 27 were murderers, 190 were prostitutes, and 509 were either alcoholics or drug addicts. Dugdale was able to estimate that the Jukes had cost the state of New York $1.4 million to house and institutionalize and treat. By contrast... The 929 descendants of Jonathan Edwards included 13 college presidents, 86 college professors, 430 ministers, 314 war veterans, 75 authors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and 80 holders of public office, including three U.S. senators, seven U.S. representatives, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, and a controller of U.S. treasury. Not bad, Jonathan Edwards. Here's my point. What you do today matters. And it doesn't just matter for you, it matters for those who are coming behind you. And therefore, whenever opposition comes, whenever you face criticism, listen, as easy as it's going to be to quit and fall into just the apathy that everybody around us has fallen into, keep perspective. Remember that your life that you are building today is a life your family will stand on for generations to come. And so keep pressing forward, keep praying, keep clinging to the promises of God, keep a perspective That what you do today has profound implications on what happens tomorrow. So that's Nehemiah chapter 4. Practically as we close this morning, what does this mean for us? I would say two things very, very quickly. One is this. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life will what? Be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life, to be a person of holy ambition, will suffer persecution. Listen, when you face opposition, don't look at it as something you were doing wrong. More than likely, it's something you're doing right. Opposition and criticism will come when you decide to live for God. Secondly, I would just say this, if you're going to handle opposition well, you're going to have to learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. In First Samuel thirty-six, David was facing major opposition, and it says this: First Samuel thirty-six, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all were bitter in soul. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. And you would see this—you'd see David doing this all throughout the Psalms. He would strengthen himself in the Lord by reminding himself of the promises of God, of who he is, and either what he has done or what he's promised he will do in the future. And the reality is, guys, listen, if we are going to push forward, if we are going to be a people of holy ambition, when opposition and criticism come our way, we have to start strengthening ourselves in the Lord. And I would say, if you want to know how to do that, just practically, here's what I would encourage you to do. Four things. One, start reading your Bible. I would actually encourage you to get a physical copy like this. I honestly think, and you guys are going to say, dead gum, Jared, you're getting gray hair, and now you're sounding like a guy with gray hair. But I honestly honestly think we're doing ourselves a disservice by just looking at a Bible-like app. I really do, because I think the Bible's like a map. I, we have no idea how to even get around it anymore. It's just like, what's the verse of the day? Bam. We don't even know where it's at in the Bible. We don't know how to navigate it, how to get around in it, you know? And, and I would encourage you, get a physical Bible, mark it up, right? Put your, you know, whatever, your highlights in it, whatever you need to do. And if you can't afford a Bible, we'll buy you one on the church's card, okay? And so it'll be a hardback, about 10 bucks. Won't be very nice, but we'll get you one, Okay? <laughs> And so read your Bible, meditate and memorize the scripture. So when opposition comes and people are saying, man, this is who you are and all that, like you can remind yourself actually who you are based off of what the scripture says. Secondly, I would say this, and for the guys, you probably will think this is kind of, I don't know what you'll think it is, but I would say this, start journaling. I would, I would honestly start keeping a journal. I actually do that on my phone. Okay, um, I've been journaling for years since I was, uh, since I became a Christian. So that was about 15 years now. And, and here's what's great about journaling is when I go through hard times, you know what's great about having a journal is sometimes I go through a hard moment and I forget I've gone through a moment very similar to this before. And I'll go back and I'll read my journal and I'll see like, oh man, like God was with me then and he came through it in an incredible way. And I know if he did it before, he'll do it again. So journaling is fantastic. Another thing I would do is a third thing is practically, I would recall words of encouragement or prophetic words that have been spoken into your life. This is really important. I have a whole file on my phone, and and it's on my computer as well. They're synced together. That is just words of encouragement that you guys have given me throughout the years or prophetic words that were spoken in my life. Because whenever I begin to doubt myself and think about tapping out, I can go back and be reminded of these words that God has spoken through others into my life. It's incredibly valuable. And the fourth thing I would just say is this practically, is if you're not in a fight club, I would encourage you to get in a fight club. You need other people, other brothers and sisters who have the Spirit of God who can listen to your life and how you share your thoughts and your feelings and all that and then speak the truth into your life to remind you of who God is and His promises that He's made to you. And there's other things we could say, but I want to tell you, if we're going to be people who face opposition, if we're going to be a people who can press forward in the midst of the persecution, we have to learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And one way that we do that every single week is by partaking of communion. This is not an empty ritual. Jesus knew that we were going to face persecution. And one of the tangible ways that we can strengthen ourselves in him is by tearing off a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice and be reminded that Jesus Christ is the better Nehemiah. And here's what I want you to think about today. Think about this as we are about to come forward. Jesus would face a far greater opposition than even Nehemiah would face. Not only would he face an earthly opposition, he would have to go up against Satan himself and death and sin and hell, enemies that we could never defeat. And what's incredible is as he would go to the cross, the very people he was dying for would mock and jeer at him and spit at him. And you know what he did? Unlike Nehemiah, he didn't pray for God's justice. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the love of God. It's incredible, and I want to remind you that, like, Be reminded of the truth, that Jesus Christ came, and though we were his enemies, he gave his life for us so that we could become children of the Father. And so today, if you're a Christian, and you've trusted in the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you can tear up a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. We have two stations in the front, two stations in the back, gluten-free option in the back left there. If you were here and you are not a Christian, we would invite you, rather than receiving communion, to receive Jesus. And if you want more information about what it looks like to follow after him, we'd encourage you to come. You can talk with me. I'll be here in the front. So let's stand together as our band comes forward. And I'll pray for us. We'll partake of communion. We'll sing one more song. And we'll be done. Father, I thank you so much for each person who made it a point to wake up and to come this morning. I am sure in a room this large, there were people who came very close to not even coming today. And, and I, I have nothing but respect for for these people. Uh, they made a choice today to press forward in the midst of the opposition, even though it wasn't easy. And I pray that, Father, in, in the days and the weeks and months and years to come, that we truly will be a people who realize that you are not only for us but you are with us and therefore we can go to you at any time and that you will continue to fight for us That we will cling to your promises that we will believe that we are who you say we are and not who a coach or a parent or ex-spouse or anybody else has said that we are and I pray that truly that you would use us to continue to press forward and to make your name great I thank you for how you're working in Julie and I thank you for the work you're doing in Haji woman who's far from you and her kids and now even this other Ethiopian family who we've been introduced to this week. This week and, and I pray for all the others in our city who are broken and burnt out and hopelessly lost, who are in desperate need of good news, that we'd be a people who are able to by how we live and how we speak to take that news forward, for the good of the city and the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.